This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. So welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I'm Andy Santanello, Senior Military Behavioral Health Psychologist. And who do I have with me today? I'm Kevin Holloway. I'm the Director of Training and Education at CDP. Hey, Kevin. Hey. How's it going? It's going all right, you know. Yeah, right. Kind of, I, I tell people all the time, it feels like Groundhog Day every day now. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. They should, no, I was going to say they should make, remake Groundhog Day, but have it be COVID, but no. Right. <laughs> I think we want to forget once we finally can move on. Right. Well, so today I had a question for you. Okay. Um, so you've been to an EBP workshop, like a two day workshop, and you want to improve your EBP skills. So now what? I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that today. Okay. That sounds like, that's a great question. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of people who are listening are kind of in that boat. I know that you and I have both in that, been in that boat many times. Yeah. I, you know, I've been trained in CPT and PE and I've gone to, you know, many just sort of CBT workshops and because I wanted to improve my skills and I'm guessing similar to you. Yes. Been to several. I mean, of course, you know, PE and, and CPT. I've been to both of those too. Recently went to like an ACT boot camp. That was a very interesting experience too. So yeah, lots of great opportunities to learn. But yeah, so the question though is now what when the workshop's over? Right. right. Well, and I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I will often go to a workshop and I've been to boot camp too, the ACT mm -hmm. boot camp too. Um, and really excited. I'm going to sit through this intense training over the course of boot camp was, I think, five days, right? Um, and at the end of that, I'm going to come out with better skills. I'm going to feel more confident about the model. Uh, and it's going to make sort of a lasting impact on what I do. And I think to some extent, that's true. And I also noticed that I still had a lot of work to do. I wasn't right. sort of as skillful as I'd like to be. Has that been similar to you? Similar yeah. You know, I, I usually come out of a workshop really excited and I, I'm thinking of all the clients that I could, you know, use this, this new skill set with and, you know, which ones are really great fits, but then also feel like I'm just getting started here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know what I don't know, but also, you know, how do I get going? with these folks or, you know, how do I have the confidence to do it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, knowing a bit, but not knowing exactly how to move forward, mm -hmm. knowing that you need to do something. It can be a sort of a stuck place to be, I think. Yeah. And especially I think for me, and, and maybe this is common when I get in that stuck place or I'm feeling like I'm not really sure how to move forward with something new, I usually kind of fall back to what I know. Right. Yeah. Keep going back to doing what I was doing beforehand, which is, it's not horrible, but it's funny because the point of going to the workshop was to incorporate these new skills and be able to use them. Exactly. Um, we're not, we're not, I mean, we are geeks, 
<laughs> so part of it is because we're really interested in this stuff from that perspective. But I, I agree with you. You know, the main reason, you know, I go to a workshop like that is because I want it to translate into being a better therapist and, you know, that being in the service of helping my clients in ways that I can't now, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so it's it's interesting though, because the model we tend to have, and we have a, a bit of this at CDB too, is this idea of intensive workshop, giving a lot of information over the course of several days, uh, maybe doing some practice, you know, role plays, that type of thing, watching some expert demonstrations, either live or videos, maybe you get a treatment protocol. Um, and then it's sort of like go forth and, and do the therapy, which um, has some advantages and disadvantages. Um, and, and one of the things I think about is in terms of skill building, almost any type of skill that you want to get better in requires a lot of practice. Like if you want to get really right. good at chopping onions, you know, you don't go to like uh, a crash course one day onion chopping seminar and then you're great <laughs> at chopping onions. Right. Well, and I think about this too, like I, I, I kind of watch myself when I'm attending workshops and, and kind of see where my brain is. And, and I've noticed that at least, I don't know how many people are, who are listening there or Andy yourself, when it gets to the workshop when they're like, we're going to do a role play exercise or we're going to practice the skill that we just learned. Yeah, you know, how many people are get really excited? Like, yay, we can do this. <laughs> I, I don't either. I don't like getting scrutinized or, you know, or you know, practicing this thing I don't feel confident in, but what it really illustrates for me is that there's a big difference for me, at least when I'm sitting in a workshop and listening and man, these concepts just totally make sense and they go together. And you know, it, th- this is really a great way to, to think about things and approach things. And there's a difference between that and then actually trying to, to do it and, and generate it and, you know, kind of offer to a client or, or even in those role play exercises, like a stand in simulated client. Um, those skills that, that while I'm watching them really look great. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I can do that. And then I get to doing it. And I'm like, ah, I, I don't yeah. know what to do next. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and the, you mentioned the role play issue. I, do you think that some of it has to do with just even the way sometimes that's set up that this is uh, like, you're going into that and there's some sort of standard that you have to get right. And there's all this like pressure, even if it's like a contrived situation where nothing, literally nothing is at stake. Right. You're working with another professional. If they don't quote unquote get better, it doesn't matter. Right. There's there's literally (laughs) nothing at stake, except maybe your ego and your pride. Um, But it's set up in a way where it's not really like the, the idea is almost like it's not okay to fail, to make mistakes. I guess I've, I've experienced that. And, but I also have experienced some role plays where they say like, this is the time to screw up, like screw up now and screw up big and, and have that experience. And that that's, I I like that, but at the same time, I see what you're getting at, right? It's, it's even in that situation, Mm -hmm. it still feels different. Like I'll be spending the time in my head going, well, you know, if this was a real person in front of me that I had a lot of history with, and that I had done all this assessment with it, had all this information to make it more personalized. And I could really, you know, dig in and do this right, right now. I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing here is kind of as contrived as the situation or, you know, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we've been spending a lot of time talking about why it's hard, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, uh, I think that's kind of the point. It's one of the reasons we, we wanted to talk about this and yet, uh, finding a way to practice is, is essential. So there's a, mm-hmm. a study by Chow and colleagues came out 
about five years ago, six years ago, and it looked at uh, really skilled clinicians and predictors of how clinicians get to be that way. And mm-hmm. looked at a couple of different variables, and one of them was years of experience, like how long had you actually been in the field doing therapy? And another right. was how much deliberate practice had that clinician put in to develop the therapy skills they want to get better at? Mm-hmm. What would you guess the main predictors of skillfulness were? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I think the reason you're bringing it up is because perhaps the outcome was not what was expected, but I would say not with that on board, you know, certainly there's, there's gotta be something to experience, right? People who have been working in the field for a long time or, mm-hmm. you know, have, have honed skills across many different approaches and, and clients over the years, maybe that would have some predictive power there. Well, so it predicted something, it predicted clinician confidence. Okay. You know, so it, <laughs> it, it, it like, you know, if you've been doing something for a long time that you assume you're doing it well. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, it, at time actually practicing experience did not actually predict skillfulness it predict confidence, not skillfulness. So it was actually deliberate practice. And then average, the most highly skilled clinicians in that study uh, put about two and a half hours of deliberate practice every week into their craft. And those aren't mutually exclusive. So let me see if I get it. Um, there were a lot of folks in the study that felt very confident in their skills, and that yes. was correlated with how long they've been practicing in general. Got it. Um, but that didn't really have anything to do with how actually skillful they were. They thought they were skillful. They weren't necessarily skillful. Yep. The thing that we actually predicted their skillfulness was whether they were intentionally setting aside time to focus on practicing that skill. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so kind of eye-opening. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that all of us as clinicians need to keep in mind with that is um, you know, like when we first start out, I remember when I was in graduate school and seeing my first clients, I didn't feel confident at all. I right. felt very not confident. <laughs> and um, I think you're you not know, alone in that. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I know I'm really putting myself out there. <laughs> um and over time, I think I've gotten to feel more confident uh, with with you know the work I do. And mm-hmm. It's not always the case, um, but certainly you know I, I, I feel more confident. Um, and at the same time, like I wonder, you know, does that mean I'm better at certain things that I was in the past, or I've just sort of habituated to the anxiety of being in that situation, and it's more familiar. Um, and so it. it maybe the, the feeling of confidence is not the best indicator of whether or not you're good at therapy. Right. Know? Like okay. what if the better indicator is your schedule and no, noticing how much time you're putting in every week, you know, to actually improve. Yeah. Skills. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, and, and I'll say this as an aside, we, maybe we cut this part out, but you know, I, as I've talked with colleagues over the years about how they know they're a good therapist or not, or whether they're doing good therapy, it's really interesting the kind of answers you hear, right? I've had some colleagues that will even say, well, I know that I'm doing really good work with this client because they keep coming back week after week after week, Mm -hmm. which is funny because that almost indicates they're not doing a good job, that this person maybe isn't progressing. Now, I mean, week after week for you know, reasonable amount of time. That makes sense. But we're talking that this person was very proud of the fact that they had retained some clients for years. Yeah. Right. You know, um, 
or I mean, there's and it, that there's something to that. I mean, you know, if you're uh, a horrible, mean person, you right. probably don't have good rapport building skills, and you're probably not <laughs> don't have a very healing presence. So if you are are a, you know somebody who is safe to talk to and creating a safe space for clients to talk about you know things, and you notice your clients are coming back. I mean, that, that could be an indication, but I think you're right. Also, you know, if, if, if the goal of therapy is to help somebody resolve their problems and issues and accomplish their goals so they can move on, you're right. It could be actually an indication that the thing that you are paying attention to as a therapist and thinking is an indication that you're doing a good job might actually be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It might be creating dependency. And I agree with you too, that idea that, you know, that, lack of anxiety perhaps so that you're feeling very comfortable in what you do yeah you know is is often used as an indicator that i i do a good job because i feel like i do a good job you yeah. know exactly so okay so back to that study then how did it did it look at how much time people were putting in intentionally and by the way i think this is important enough uh, important enough study that you brought up we should include it in our show notes that um for people to be able to access them later yeah, agreed. Well, we can we have the technology to do that for sure. By the way, I love it when we're recording things and people just open the door into my office. Just my favorite too. Reason. I'm anyway. waiting for my dog to start whining at me. <laughs> pretty soon he's sleeping, but as soon as I, you know, he's ready for his walk. <laughs> um, yeah, we can include that. So the the key seems to be deliberate, and this is just one study. So we yeah. can. I don't want to overgeneralize, but deliberate practice. Uh, so to go back to that silly metaphor of like getting good at chopping onions, you know, like getting lots of onions and practicing your technique, uh, over and over and having an idea of what a good technique is. So Uh having some framework. And I think this is where maybe attending like an intensive two day workshop and seeing, you know, examples of expert demonstrations come in to get an idea of what the skill looks like when it's done correctly. So you have some way of judging whether you're doing it right or not. Uh-huh. So like knowing what an onion looks like when it's chopped up and watching videos of how to, how to do that in the right way. And then repeating that action over and over and over again to hone that skill. And then to continue practicing um, afterwards to sort of maintain your uh, efficiency. So two thoughts. What, you, you said earlier about how long or how much intentional practice to do. And we, I think we've all heard some of those other things, those, whether it's studies or even just sayings, right. That in order to become an expert at something, you have to put in like 10,000 hours, right. You know, this is incredibly right. daunting amount of, of practice time into it. How does that square up? Number one. And then the other thought I had is that in some ways that that's not at all different than what we're asking our clients to do. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. for example i mean thinking about prolonged exposure therapy for ptsd we're asking people to think about memories that are really distressing and to go do things that previously have been really distressing and we'll sometimes have clients that will say well i think about this all the time how is me thinking about this in your office going to be any different or how is this you know how's it going to be any different for me doing it this way and you know, what, one of the things we tell them is, well, we're, we're going to do it a little differently than what you have been doing, just kind of, um, you know, on your own. We're going to do it in a way that will hopefully be more therapeutic. And, and so it sounds to me partly, partly what you're saying, this is an intentional practice. It's not just, well, I went out and I've been seeing clients now and kind of drop, you know, I feel like I'm doing this 
well, but you're in, intentionally focusing on your skill building. Yeah, deliberately focusing right on your skills uh, and and putting practice in. Well, it's interesting because that ten thousand hours um, statistic or benchmark. Uh, you know, I'm not going to remember the the names of, and actually, maybe we can do some research and put the some citations in here. But my understanding is that research was done with really sort of high level expert performers in different areas. So we're talking about like um, master musicians and professional okay. athletes, people like that. And uh, in that research, it suggests that to be at that sort of elite level, sort of the 1% of the 1%, 10,000 hours is about the average amount of time of practice mm. that you need to get in. Um, which and, and that's sort of been generalized and extrapolated to mean that to learn a skill, you need to put in 10,000 right. hours of practice. Uh, I watched a really interesting um, TED Talk a couple of weeks back by a guy named Josh Kaufman. And uh, he talks about this uh, issue of skill acquisition. And, you know, he, he basically suggests that it takes only about 20 hours of focused, deliberate practice to get competent in something, mm. which is a whole lot more reasonable than 10,000. <laughs> it's definitely more reachable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so you're right. I mean, sometimes we put on ourselves that requirement or that expectation somehow that of being the, this excessively elite expert level when really for our client's sake good enoughness is good enough like right being competent at these skills is really what we're looking for that's the goal yeah like we don't have to necessarily set out a goal to be edna foa if we're going to do pe right or patricia resick if we're going to do cpt or steve hayes if we're going to do act in fact if that's our goal like we're never going to achieve it <laughs> exactly and if that and and Frankly, Which paralyzes us, right, from even trying to get better. And it paralyzes the field, if you think about it, because if yeah. that's what we all have to shoot for, then there's really no hope that we're going to disseminate <laughs> EBT because like, none of us are ever going to be able to do it exactly like they do it. Right. Um, so this idea of 20 hours, though, is sort of interesting. And who knows I mean, you know, if, if 20 hours is the number, um, but it's, it's sort of an interesting heuristic to play around with. Like if, if the goal is to do it, so... If predictors of skill building and having a highly skilled therapist are deliberate practice for about two and a half hours a week, uh-huh. and if it takes about 20 hours to become competent in a skill, then maybe that gives us a way of thinking about what the next steps might be after going to an EVP workshop. So you learned all this yeah. new stuff. You learned about the existence of this new stuff. You have kind of an idea of how it should look. Uh-huh. Um, you also recognize that you're, you're not there yet. Uh-huh. So, you know, Kevin, what, what might be, so you're, you're a PE trainer at CDP. Yep. Um, what are some of the sort of like the key skills that you would sort of think somebody might need to be able to, if you're really to break down the protocol and sort of the key behavior therapist behaviors that somebody needs to do really well to make PE successful, what might be some of those things? Um, I mean, one, one of them is just simply how do you talk to your client about rationale? I mean, okay. in PE, we do a lot of discussion about rationale. We talk about why we're going to do things. What do we think is going to benefit the client for mm-hmm. some of the exercises that we're going to do together? And um, when when I've been teaching workshops, and, and I, I think back to when I first attended a PE workshop as a as a learner, um, you know, again, it's 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 one thing to hear that stuff from a presenter tell you what the rationale and the reasoning is. It's totally different to talk about it 
when you're less familiar with those concepts, you know, to somebody who's brand new. So, I mean, that just, just practicing that I, in whether that's focused practice on just, you know, talking about these concepts in a, in a consumable way for, for a client, um, stumbling over your words and giving yourself permission to not say it perfectly, yeah. um, I think would be an important piece there. And then if I had to come up with a second, I think the second is, is to maybe practice not rescuing mm-hmm. and, 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 and it's weird to practice a non-skill, right. Or to practice the absence of doing something. But, um, I, I think for a lot of new PE therapists, one of the things that's it's difficult is we, we all go into this field because we have these, um, images in our head of helping people to feel better, right? Like we want them to not, and I'm saying this really generally, I'm not necessarily saying this about a specific approach, but you know, we, the idea is that we want to help people either to live more authentically, or we want them to decrease um, symptoms that are interfering with their functioning. And, and sometimes part of that process is uncomfortable for the therapist, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And we want to jump in and we want to kind of rescue the client from the hard work they need to do because in that moment it feels uncomfortable. So, I mean, that skill practicing, not rescuing from that discomfort mm-hmm. when it's needed. Well, two things you mentioned there. One is, uh, you know, first of all, learning maybe the key points of the rationale, but also practicing talking about it. And I liked what you said about yeah. stumbling over your words, you know, so saying it out loud over and over again, kind of will help you to, to notice maybe those places that you're not really fluid with it yeah, and make you think a little bit, because it's one thing I, I don't, I'm not, not sure if you've had this experience where you've had to write something down that you're planning to say, and then you say it out loud and it, it doesn't yes. work. <laughs> um, it's similar thing here. Uh, that, so, you, you know, maybe uh, one skill that people could work on, just a micro skill would be learning the rationale and maybe breaking it up into parts and then just saying it out loud over and over again to yeah. get some uh, fluid with, fluidity with it. And the second part I thought was really interesting because you talked about it as a non-skill, but as you were talking about it, I to me, what I was thinking is it's really this sort of um, ability to bear witness to some another yeah. human being who's in pain and find that balance between being engaged and present, but also not interfering with them emoting, saying right. what they need to say. I like how you say that. that. That really does capture it. So, you know, I was thinking like, how could somebody practice that? Well, one way you could is... Uh, just with anybody in your life, mm-hmm. when you're finding yourself in a conversation with somebody you care about, and you could even do it sort of a planned way, just ask somebody to help you out by talking about an issue going on in their life. It doesn't have to be the biggest issue. It could be just something that's stressing them out and just practice attending to what that person is saying and yeah. noticing your urges maybe to jump in to sort of fix it or offer a problem but just really spend time bearing witness to that. And it's the yeah. same skill I think you would need to listen to really intensive stuff in therapy. I don't know absolutely. what you think. I, absolutely. I, I, I like what you're saying because what, what it makes me think is that, you know, ha- having focused intentional practice doesn't even necessarily necessitate setting up a contrived situation. I mean, mm-hmm. there's going to be circumstances that present themselves to any one of us that, you know, with, friends or family or, or whoever, where that is a possibility and to be mindful of those, be watching for those opportunities. But, and it's great when you can find opportunities in just sort of your daily life to, to think about what those essential skills are maybe, and then use those times as ways to sort of get better at 
you know, your conversations with clients. I'm just trying to think if there's anything with CPT or ACT. So with CP, CPT, I guess, similarly, the bearing witness um, practice would be important. I guess like another thing that could be really useful is to, uh, you know, one of the things in CPT, one of the most important things is teaching clients the cognitive model. Uh, and so part of that is using sort of the ABC worksheet to identify activating events and then beliefs and consequences or emotions. So maybe one of the micro skills there is, uh, you know, sort of just paying attention in conversation. And as you hear people talking, could just, again, be a normal conversation. See if you can pick out, you know, what would be the activating event here? What do I guess the person is telling themselves? And what is it? What would I guess their emotion is? Or if you wanted to practice that with another clinician or somebody sort of as a, you know, a, a deliberate practice, asking that person to sort of describe a situation that's going on in their life and then asking them questions to clarify, like what, what happened first there? What, do you, what was the thing that kind of triggered this? And then, you know, what was going through your mind after that happened? And then what did you notice your emotions were? You know, really simple, just kind of a discrimination task, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, and working on that and getting, getting really fluid with it might be a way of kind of practicing some of those foundational skills. And, and I think too, you know, the way you're describing it also makes me want to clarify something I said earlier. Being Looking for those opportunities that present themselves naturally in our day-to-day -day lives is important. I think it's mm -hmm. important for us to be sensitive to those and recognize them. But it doesn't necessarily preclude and doesn't have to substitute for intentionally set a, setting aside some time, getting some kind of... Uh, support, whether it's a colleague or a significant other or somebody else that is willing to let you practice skills with them, you know, in an intentional way that's not, I, I think if I left it up to myself to just do it in naturalistic situations, then I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> like, well, I'll notice here and there. Yeah. And that's the intentional part that you mentioned earlier is like really intentionally setting up times to practice these things instead of just thinking I'm going to absorb these skills over time in throughout my normal day-to-day -day interactions and you and like from other yeah exactly because you know how that goes and i know how that goes in our daily life when we say we're i'm going to work on this thing in my life and then if you don't right. sort of set the time so yeah i mean deliberately intending to look for opportunities to do this informally but then also setting aside time to, to practice this and i think that's the real key is making sure that you're making a plan for yourself. I mean, one way to think about this is working out, you know, like comics, for example, when they're developing a new bit, they will go to a comedy club and just what they call it working out. They'll just play around with a bit, see how it goes with the intention of finding out what's working and what's not, yeah. you know, um, before they, they sort of work it into their main routine. And I think that's something that therapists can do too, and maybe not go to a comedy club and do it. I don't <laughs> think, you know, I mean, you could, but you know, just setting aside a certain amount of time each day for a deliberate practice on some of these key skills might be a way to sort of bring this forward, which kind of brings me to consultation. So yes. one of the things that you and I, and I think all the other trainers at CDP preach about is, you know, the importance of consultation. Uh -huh. um, yet. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny, like there, there's so much to say about that. I, I, I think we should, we can definitely, let's talk about it right now, but um, I think we could even dedicate a whole episode to that. In yeah, the future. I think we should. Well, I, yeah. I just thought I would mention it because that that's a context in which practice could happen. Exactly. You know, um, and yet sometimes 
it's not the the easiest most practical context for folks to get into it to practice. So it, I think the reason I wanted to mention is that sometimes I think that consultations presented as the only option, if you want to get better. At right. I, and I agree with that, that it's certainly not the only option, but it's a pretty good one. And, yeah. and I, and I wonder, I mean, we can certainly explore this more in a future conversation, but I wonder if some of the reasons why consultation is tough for some folks is because of exactly what we talked about earlier with the article you brought up, right? That, that folks who have been practicing for a while, and I mean, practicing as in being a, a behavioral health provider uh, for a while feel like either going to consultation means they're not confident in their skills or that they're somehow not skilled or going to consultation means they didn't pay attention enough in the workshop, right. And, and absorb right. all the skills naturally. Um, or that, you know, you could probably come up with a whole number of reasons there, but perhaps based on that, um, not quite accurate assumption that if I've been practicing for many, many years, that means I must be really good at this particular skill. And it's not okay to not be good at something. Right. That means like you're incompetent. And certainly if you've been in the field for 25 years, that's, I mean, it's, it feels bad to be incompetent when you're a trainee, but you kind of get a pass. <laughs> right. But if you've been practicing for 25 years and that feeling of incompetence and not knowing to do something, so it's not knowing how to do something and then it gets filtered into incompetence, uh-huh. you know, but the not knowing how to do something is a good thing to be aware of. Cause then that's sort of, if you look at it the right way as an opportunity for growth. And so it, it still doesn't feel yeah. good, but I think you're right. Like that could be a barrier well, here. And, you know, I'm, and I'll, I'll just mention quickly when I was a trainee and, you know, we, when we were all trainees, we, we had to do some form of supervision, which is slightly different than consultation, but, you know, in some ways has a lot of similarities, but supervision, right? You had to go in and you had to talk about your cases and you had to talk about what was going well. And, and if there were any, you know, issues and problems that were happening, we needed to talk about those too. But I remember this, this, this pull to go in and, and present if you will, to my supervisor, all the ways that I really didn't need their supervision, right? (laughs) Yeah. That here I am as a trainee, and yet I'm so competent at doing this stuff that I'm just going to tell you about this client and why I said all the right things at the right time. And we did all the right interventions in the right way. And nope, there's no problems to talk about. And and we still do that, you know, Mm -hmm. after we're out of that trainee role. Um, And and, and in some ways, rob ourselves of a really cool opportunity. And, And that is to to be a little vulnerable, a little vulnerable and, and say, look, this is, this is what I did do. I'm not so sure it went well, or I expected it to go well and it didn't. Can we talk about this and just get other eyes on and, and then I can do, do better in the future. You know, that's such a good point. It's, it's almost funny when you think about it because it's, it's, you know, that, that pressure to present in a certain way and to be sort of blessed off as comp- competent. Mm-hmm creates this context in which we don't talk about the areas uh, of our practice that, that probably we need to talk about, Yeah, that we, we, we avoid the problem because we think that having the problem means that we're bad or not good at something. So I used to look forward to the day when I didn't have to go to supervision anymore and nobody had to watch my tapes and I didn't (laughs) have to, you know, stand up to that scrutiny. And and to be honest, there are times now where I kind of wish I still had that. You know, and, and had that chance to get other people's input in the work I'm doing. You know, so, so maybe one of the things, maybe one of the parts of the actionable Intel, you know, practical 
advice that um, I think could be important that's sort of coming out of this discussion here is that the approach you have to this, your skill building is going to have an impact on how effective it is. So one is one part of it would be making this sort of a deliberate thing that you, you do an intention to deliberately practice the skills in a, in a way that's sort of focused um, and intentional. And the other is maybe instead of treating these practices as a, a way of kind of proving to yourself that you're competent or demonstrating your competence, um, treating them as opportunities to, to make those mistakes in almost like a playful way, like uh -huh. play around with something, um, try different things to see what works uh, and, and like allow you said, them for it. Yeah. Like you said, in a non high stakes way, right? Nobody, yeah, do, right. Think of it in those opportunities to, to mess up spectacularly where nobody's going to be messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when, when you, I mean, if you think about it in terms of play, like in, in play, yeah. there's literally nothing at stake. You're just there to have an experience and hopefully it's a good time. And if you try, like if you try something and it's not a good time, it doesn't work out, then you don't have to do that again. And like, so, you know, the skill building, approaching it almost like a, a game, like, you know, thinking about uh, all these little aspects of doing EVPs is creating almost little mini games, like for five minutes, just bear witness to this person, you know, and notice your urges, like notice your urges to jump in and fix and see how many you can not buy, you know, not buy into, not sort of, yeah. do, you know, like for the next five minutes, you know, every time you sort of notice somebody say something that sounds like an emotion, just make a note of it to yourself, you know, just as a way of kind of like, improving those skills, but making it not so heavy. Not, right. Not, right. Not like it's, you know, I like that a lot. I'm going to start doing that or I'm going to keep doing that. I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> well, restart. <laughs> I don't know. Start. I think reorient I think, towards doing that. And, and there's, uh, my guess is that you, we all, we all kind of do this to, to some extent, but I think the deliberateness of it. And exactly. The so recently, this is something I've gotten really interested in and excited about, and I've been practicing these little things, uh, you know, just uh, deliberately to see if I can kind of hone in on areas that I want to get better at. So like, for example, one of the things that I've recently noticed, which is a little bit disturbing to me, is that uh, I'm not super great at labeling my own emotions, hmm. uh, which is all evidence that I'm incompetent. Right. As a therapist. <laughs> right. Like if you're a, a therapist, you need to be completely <laughs> firing on all cylinders yeah. as a human being. Right? So I, I noticed this. Um, I'm like pretty decent at helping other people label their own emotions, notice and label them. But like, I'll notice that I'm feeling a certain way and I'll ask myself, how am I feeling today? And I, I'm a, sort of a loss for words. So I've been practicing uh, every time I notice my mood shifting, just like we teach clients to take mm -hmm. a minute and put an emotion word next to it. And if I don't know what the right label is or it doesn't feel right, I go back to an emotion wheel and sort of look through it. And I'm starting to sort of build my vocabulary that way. So really simple, you know, sort of task. Really, it would be really easy for me to just ignore that because it's sort of like I quote unquote should know how to label all of my emotions all the time right, right. as an emotionally intelligent therapist. <laughs> but if I took that approach, I wouldn't grow. So instead I'm using that as an opportunity to, to grow. So that, that might be an example of something people could try. I think it's a great one. It reminds me, and I know, I know we're running out of time. It reminds me of an experience that I had not so long ago where 
um, you know, I was working on some self-improvement things and it was the, the program I was working with included a lot of, you know, very obviously nakedly CBT principles. And I found myself at times where it was difficult. I, I had to remind myself, I tell people all the time to do these things. And if I can't do it myself, right. or if I can't, not, not if I'm not really good at it, but if I can't commit to doing these very things, um, you know, that, that's something I need to be aware of and work on because, you know, I, I'm asking folks to do that all the time. And, and, you know, it, if I believe in these principles, then I need to commit to doing them too. So it was really eye opening as well to, to think about, um, you know, me personally committing to doing the things that I ask people to do all the time and, and taking the opportunity to practice that and having that experience. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It just, you know, it, it sort of builds empathy for your clients putting them in and putting yourself in their shoes and also giving you an opportunity to practice what you preach. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up here and I'm going to put you on the spot again, so get yep. the wheels turning. Um, <laughs> what might be just a couple of pieces of really practical advice that you might give to clinicians, to folks out there who are uh, wanting to improve their EBP skills have gone to, you know, maybe a workshop in that place where they're feeling kind of stuck, what might be just a couple of pieces of advice you could give somebody in that situation to, you know, sort of continue to improve? Well, I, th I think the first one is going to be unsurprisingly seek out opportunities for consultation. Um, there's, there are opportunities all around. And sometimes that's literally getting with a colleague and saying, Hey, let's meet together regularly to talk about this stuff. It might be joining a group that already exists. Um, at CDP, we have a couple of, of consultation groups that meet regularly. And, you know, if you attended any of our workshops, you probably heard information on how to join them, but you know, like take advantage of those opportunities and, and, and use those as opportunities to practice the skills, the skills like we've been talking about or practice opportunities to, to put them in play. Um, and I think maybe the second one is just kind of to do what we've been talking about before. Like, look at your schedule. Can you carve out some time that's protected time for you to, to really focus on applying the skills that you learned in the workshop and not just assume that you passively absorbed a lot of competence and, you know, so that number one, seek out opportunities for consultation. Number two, look at your, your schedule and see if you can carve out some time just to focus intentionally on practicing skills. What would you say? I agree with both of those things. And I guess uh, to add to that, be really honest with yourself about what you're good at and what you're not good at. And mm -hmm. uh, try to use a measure or a criterion other than how confident you are. I like um, that. So a lot of a lot of therapies have kind of therapists self-rating competency forms. I know there's a really great one for for acceptance and commitment therapy out there. Um, in the CPT training that we do, included our handouts as um, a fidelity form that you can fill out. Uh, so I think you know, pay attention to those areas where your skills are not where you want them to be, um, and then using maybe that information as an opportunity to think about what could be some really you know, straightforward ways for you to break these skills down and practice them in a way that feels like there's nothing at stake. Like you're just playing around with these skills to get better uh, and working that into your, your routine. Um, and if you're not sure how to do that, uh, email me, Kevin, one of the other, um, you know, trainers at CDP, and we'll be happy to brainstorm some ways of uh, coming totally. up with some little practices for you. Um, happy to do that. So we'll include contact information in the show notes too. 
Absolutely. I, yeah, I shouldn't offer that and then be like, how do we get in touch? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, Kevin, I appreciate you uh, chatting with me about this today. I feel like we could go on and on about this, but um, we totally could. But I, yeah, I've appreciated the conversation. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time. <laughs>